Morning, Bethel. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning as we have come to worship the Lord together. All right, our scripture reading this morning, it is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel family. All right, so... Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we are going to continue our study in this amazing letter that Paul penned to the church in Corinth. And we are going to look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. We've been going through this book for a little while now, um, section by section. And this morning we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. It's on page 970. So if you don't have um, a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 970 and um, be at the right spot. So we'll read that in just a minute, but I want to open with an illustration here. So back in 2010, Tyndale House published the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. So here's the publisher's description. In 2004, Kevin Malarkey and his six-year-old son, Alex, suffered an horrific car accident. The impact from the crash paralyzed Alex, and medically speaking, it was unlikely that he could survive. I think Alex has gone to be with Jesus, a friend told the stricken dad. But two months later, Alex awoke from a coma with an incredible story to share of events at the accident scene and in the hospital while he was unconscious, of the angels that took him through the gates of heaven itself, of the unearthly music that sounded just quote, terrible to a six-year-old, and most amazing of all, of meeting and talking to Jesus. The boy who came back from heaven is 
Again, this is a publisher's description. The true story of an ordinary boy's most extraordinary journey. As you see heaven and earth through Alex's eyes, you will come away with new insights on miracles, life beyond this world, and the power of a father's love. Fast forward a few years, and in 2015, Tyndall House announced that it would stop selling the boy who came back from heaven because the young boy featured in the book said his story wasn't true. So, do I have to point out the irony of the family name, Malarkey? Um, okay, did you catch that? I didn't make that up. So, the publisher made the decision after Alex wrote an open letter to the retailer Lifeway. So, here's what he wrote this is what the boy wrote I did not die, I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. End quote. So if you remember, this book was just one of several that enjoyed kind of a significant amount of popularity a few years ago, um, 90 Minutes in Heaven by a guy named Don Piper. Uh, he was actually a pastor. And then the most famous of this genre, Heaven is for Real, about the little boy who went to heaven, and it was even turned into a movie. So what was your reaction to that little cultural phenomenon a few years ago. So it really shouldn't be surprising that Alex Malarkey wrote that he had never read the Bible because if he had read our passage, the book of 2 Corinthians, particularly chapter 12, he would not have wanted his dad to write this book. Okay, so let's read um, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10, and then we'll walk through it. Paul writes, I must go on boasting. So you can see we're kind of coming right in the middle of a train of thought, but we'll, we'll catch up in just a minute. Um, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise whether in the body or out of the body, I, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if you haven't been with us or, you know, in light of the missions conference, it's been a couple weeks since we um, were following through the book here. So just a quick little context. And like I said, we're picking up in the midst of a train of thought. So Paul was the spiritual father of the, the young church in Corinth. He had preached the gospel there. People came to faith in Jesus church got planted, and he had prayed and loved and written and suffered, and, and he had taught there for two years first, and then he's thinking of them and writing to them multiple times, and he's establishing them in their faith or seeking to. But then there were some itinerant preachers, false apostles that kind of crept in, and they were seeking to undermine Paul's credibility. They wanted the Corinthians to follow them instead of him. So they said things like, he's a poor speaker, Okay, Paul didn't use some of the tools of the trade of orators at the time, flattery, manipulation, and whatnot. And so he wasn't as impressive rhetorically. It's because he wanted to be clear about the gospel. So they said he was a poor speaker. They said he suffered too much to be a genuine, spirit-filled apostle. I mean, he's so weak. He's like an embarrassment. He's not strong and honorable. Why would you follow him? So these so-called super-apostles were something like the first century equivalent to, to the health wealth preachers of today. Okay, so they're externally impressive according to the values of the time. They boasted of their pedigree. They boasted of their visions and revelations, their super spiritual experiences. But Paul would much rather promote and defend the name of Jesus than draw attention to himself. Okay, but in this case, since these teachers had, you know, were leading some of these Corinthians astray, if he doesn't speak up, if he doesn't defend himself, then to turn away from him is to turn away from Jesus. That's too dangerous. He's not willing to let that happen. He hates to stoop to their level and kind of get in on this boasting battle and do some tit-for-tat thing. In fact, he refuses to do that, but he has to at least kind of go there a little bit, and it drives him crazy to do so. You can see how he talks here. Because he believed with every fiber of his being, let him who boasts, like Tyler read, boast in the Lord. He wants none of the glory to come to himself. He wants all the glory to go to Jesus. So there's, in one sense, nothing to be gained by this boasting. He, he feels like a fool doing it. But the potential loss if the Corinthians don't turn away from those hucksters, is, is the greater concern. So he's willing to, to kind of play on their field, as it were, this boasting field, in order to expose the folly of what they're doing. So he does it with this ironic twist. He does start to boast, but he twists it to expose um, what they're really doing. He doesn't want people to think more highly of him he does it actually for the good of the Corinthians. He does it for the honor of Jesus and to win those Corinthians back, not just to himself, but to follow the crucified Savior, um, Savior Jesus. 
So, in doing so, he leaves us with this passage that's probably one of the most memorable in this entire letter. You're probably familiar with the thorn in the flesh and my grace is sufficient, okay? So let's understand it here in context. We're going to do so under three points. So Paul's vision, Paul's thorn, and God's purpose. So let's look first at the vision in verses 1 to 6. So Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. You can see he's so uncomfortable, he ends up describing himself in the third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. So in the Jewish conception of the world, you have the first heavens, which is where the birds fly. Then you have the second heavens, which is where the stars are. Then you have the third heavens, which is where God dwells. Okay? So that's what third heaven is likely referring to. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Okay? So echoing Genesis 1, it's the place where God dwells. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things. So you can imagine the Corinthians like, ooh, tell us, Paul, what you heard. And he disappoints them. Things that can't be told, which man may not utter. Really what is implied here is that God wouldn't let him. He's not allowed to share what he heard. So he's boasting of a revelation but he can't speak of what he heard. So it's a no revelation revelation. So he's disappointing them if what they want is impressive spiritual experiences. Verse 5, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, if you look at chapter 11, there's this long list of sufferings that Paul has undergone. So, just like that, I'm boasting of my weaknesses. Verse 6, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, unlike the false apostles, because I would be speaking the truth. This really did happen. And this isn't the only vision or revelation that Paul received. But look at the end of verse 6. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. What can be verifiable objectively, okay? Nobody can verify an experience, some mystical experience that you have, right? So what good is it? So can you imagine the publishers talking with Paul in the first century? Sadly, of many Christian publishing companies. So Paul, we've heard about your trip to the third heaven. You know, like he's calling him. We'd be interested in pursuing a project where you tell your story, Okay, so just think of the visibility this could bring to your ministry. I mean, we can see much greater ministry platform being created from this. We think it could open doors to, you know, wider and deeper influence for the gospel. So, you know, if the book sells, and we expect that it will, you know, we can follow it with a book for kids, and then a video series and a Sunday school curriculum. Now, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we're thinking we'd like to call it 3H Ministries, you know, Third Heaven Ministries, 3HM for short. And we have this connection with this great agent who can help you get a speaking tour booked for you. Like, just think of the brand recognition you'd have as you continue to pursue your church planting dreams. You won't have to work your fingers to the bone anymore with, you know, making tents. 
I'm not bashing every book tour or every Sunday school curriculum or iteration for kids of a popular book, but sometimes market strategy, worldly marketing strategy kind of trumps the cross, okay? Paul is so countercultural, just like Jesus. Don't you admire him for it? Don't you want to be shaped by the cross more than by marketing principles and strategy? Again, not all of that is bad, but certainly a lot of it can be manipulative and the bottom line driver can be money. So just think about the fact that Paul never played this card. 14 years went by. He never played this card. So he didn't mention it to the Corinthians in the two years that he was with them teaching them. Verse 6, I refrain from it. Okay, it was an intentional decision. It was like back in 1 Corinthians 2. Remember when he said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? I wasn't trying to impress you with lofty speech or wisdom. My speech and my message were not in words of earthly wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. He didn't want their faith to be in him as this impressive order and representative of Christianity. He wanted to get out of the way and make sure that their faith rested in Christ. So that's why Paul resolved to preach the cross plainly. That's why he didn't play the third heaven vision card. Had he played the card, people would would have been wowed and impressed with him in awe of him. And that's exactly the problem. It would draw attention off of Jesus and onto him. That's what the false apostles were doing, the super spiritual ones. They wanted a cult following. You can imagine how they had tales of spiritual adventure. You know, They went here and they were carried there and they had out-of-body experiences. Paul's like, I don't know if it was in the body, out of the body. I don't know. God knows. That's not the point. They had this vision, that revelation. People hung on their words. I'm sure they had plenty of fresh, you know, recent visions and revelations to share. And Paul picks one 14 years ago. Again, nobody could challenge or disprove their visionary experience. Paul just refuses to do this. He refrains on purpose. Because here's the thing, he didn't want people to think too highly of him. He wanted people to think highly only of Jesus. You think that might be a good word for us? (laughs) Don't we so often want people to think highly of us? Anybody? What if our driving desire, because we're shaped by the cross, is, oh, I just want people to think more highly of Jesus? I don't care what they think of me. That's the kind of blessed self-forgetfulness that the cross can create. That's the kind of refreshing Christian humility and honesty that the cross can create. Have you ever run into somebody like that? You're just like, oh, they're just free. Free from the slavery of caring what people think. 
But this is what the gospel, this is what the cross can create. So every one of us in here, all sinners deserving God's judgment, just like Paul was, we had no hope of saving ourselves. Jesus, the only Savior, comes and lives the life we couldn't live, dies in our place on the cross, paying it all like we sung. So if you trust in Jesus to save you, what do you have to boast of? <laughs> what do you have that you did not receive? You've only got one boast, the cross of Christ, to boast in the Lord who has saved you. He is our life. He's our hope. He's our joy. He's our righteousness. He's our wisdom. He's our peace. He's our everything. So if you're here this morning and he's not your savior, you're going to spend the rest of your life a slave to the opinion of others. And you're going to have to try to justify yourself. You're going to have to try to atone for your own sins. And you might try to do it by being religious or doing good works or whatever to try to cover for or make up for your sin. You can't. And you're going to be on your own before him when you die. You're going to have to pay for your own sins. So this is like, lay it all down, the whole tired business. Turn from your self-efforts and your self-justifications. Acknowledge your need. Acknowledge your sin. Turn from it all. Run to Jesus. Trust him. He will set you free. The cross puts an end to our desperate search for security because we find our security and the only true security. You're safe forever. It sets us free to forget about ourselves and think of others first because God has taken care of our deepest need and no one can take it from us. No one can take him from us. Nothing can separate us from his love. So we don't have to think first of ourselves. We can think first of others and we can think preeminently of Jesus and want everyone else to think more highly of him. So that was certainly Paul's simple, passionate, pervasive desire that everyone would think more highly of Jesus. And these super apostles were such a sham leading the Corinthians away from thinking highly of Jesus because they wanted the attention for themselves. So Paul boasts, he kind of gets on the playing field, but only to undermine their folly and point the Corinthians to Jesus, point us to Jesus so this, this whole thinking highly of Jesus, his power, his grace, his everything put on display, Paul learned that it goes hand in hand with embracing weakness. Okay, so the super apostles were so externally impressive and strong. Paul learned that if you want to display the power of the cross, the power of Christ, you're going to have to embrace weakness. So Paul's vision actually led to Paul's thorn. Second point here, verses 7 and 8. Look at it there with me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So Paul boasts of this vision, third heavens, but only as a setup to the thorn. This is where he's really driving. He wants to turn this whole boasting thing on its head, and he wants to boast of his weaknesses. He wants us to see God's purpose in our weakness and suffering. So let's try to answer three questions here under this point. Okay, so what was the thorn? Where did it come from? What was its purpose? So first, what was the thorn? Identification here. Guess what? Sorry, we don't know. Okay, there's different theories. Was it mental, psychological, you know, like the guilt over his former life, persecuting Christians and all of that? I mean, he had Christians killed. He was standing there when Stephen was martyred, right? You can imagine the guilt. That could dog you every day. Was it his enemies, his persecutors, all the threats on his life? I mean, again, we just read this list in chapter 11 a couple weeks ago. We studied that. He was violently attacked, repeatedly stoned. <laughs> so violent persecution. You can imagine he could, he could wonder when the, next shoe's, when, when the other shoe's going to drop. Constant threat, danger. He had daily anxiety for all the churches. If anyone could have suffered from PTSD, it would be the Apostle Paul. Could it be that? Could it have been a debilitating eye condition or disease? I think this is probably the, the most likely candidate. Thorn in the flesh. It's a bodily thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in Galatians 4, listen to what Paul writes. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. This ailment made him weak and probably dependent, and maybe it was a little off-putting. But receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And then at the end of the book, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with, his, with my own hand? Why would he write with large letters? If you can't see very well, you need large print, and you write with bigger letters too. So you can imagine, you know, the health wealth preachers of the first century having a field day with that one, right? Paul, the apostle, has a thorn in the flesh. Aren't apostles supposed to be able to do signs and wonders and heal people? You guys want this powerful apostle to be your apostle? He can't even heal himself. God doesn't even answer his prayers for healing. That's probably the explanation that makes the most sense, but the bottom line is we don't know. And guess what? That's actually a good thing. The generality of the description means that more of us can relate to the Apostle Paul here. We can identify. It's like when the psalmist, when psalms are written just generally, we don't know what the context was. It's easier to identify, right? And the thorn isn't the point. It's just the introduction to the point. But before we consider the purpose of the thorn, we should briefly answer the question, where did this thorn come from? Okay, so what's the source of the thorn? Look at verse 7. So put your uh, 
Bible study hat on here and see if you can figure out what the source of the thorn is here. So to keep me from being becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So this thorn is obviously a messenger of Satan to harass Paul. But you also see this phrase, to keep me from becoming conceited, twice. Do you think that's Satan's purpose? Anybody? (laughs) No. Whose purpose is that? It's God's. A thorn was given me. Who did the giving? So God gives the thorn to keep Paul from becoming conceited, but it's also a messenger of Satan to harass Paul. Is that God's purpose? How do we put all this together? Have you seen this tension or this pattern before in the Bible anywhere? Come on, yell it out. Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And God says this far and no farther and gives Satan a certain amount of leash to afflict Job, even bodily. Those painful sores, boils. So Job, we've seen the pattern. How about Jesus? Listen to Mark 1. Do you remember after the baptism of Jesus, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So God had a purpose for that wilderness temptation, and Satan had a purpose as well. The same event had two opposing purposes. Satan's purpose was one thing. God's purpose was another thing altogether. But they happened in the same event. There is no contradiction between God loving his son. He just said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Go suffer. There's no contradiction between God loving his son and driving him into the wilderness to have him suffer and be tempted by Satan. It's interesting that the language of messenger is used. Satan had a deceitful message for Jesus in the wilderness, didn't he? If you're really the son of God, what kind of father sends his son out in the wilderness to starve? Does God really love you? If you bow down to me, I'll give you all of this. Have you ever questioned God's love for you when you have suffered? When you've suffered, maybe in your suffering right now, have you ever had thoughts like, 
Maybe I'm just a fraud. Do you ever hear stuff like, and you call yourself a Christian? God must hate you. You are worthless. Do you think it's possible that in one and the same situation, you're suffering, Satan is seeking to devour you, and God is seeking to strengthen you? So don't be surprised when those lying messages come. And don't think that it means God doesn't love you. What we do in those moments is reject the purpose of Satan. We trust the cruciform purpose of God. And as we'll see here in the passage even clearer, he has loving purposes for all of our pain. Okay, so this leads us into the third question, which is going to lead right into the third point, verses 9 and 10. So first, the purpose of the thorn in verses 7 and 8. What's the purpose of the thorn? It's obvious that it was a counterbalance to the exaltation Paul experienced by means of those exalted revelations, right? Third heavens to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep him from becoming conceited. So listen, the purpose was to puncture Paul's pride. God wanted to pin Paul's pride to the ground with that thorn. And he wanted to keep it there, which is why he said no when Paul asked, take it away, take it away, take it away. So I think one lesson for us is that pride, family, pride is more dangerous than pain. This pinning to the ground, pinning us to the ground in humility. It's, it's not God being cruel. He doesn't love to see us squirm in pinning us to the ground in humility and weakness, he's intending to also pin us to his grace and his strength that is sufficient for everything. Again, can you think of someone else who asked three times for something to be taken away, a bitter cup of suffering to be taken away, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. What was the father's answer? Silence. 
His answer was no. And he was pinned to a stake. Pinned to a tree. Satan had his purpose for the cross. And the Father had his purpose for the cross. Which one won out? Is that good news? Which one won out? With Job, which one won out? With Paul, which one won out? With Jesus, which one won out? With you, with me. Listen to David Garland here. What is sent to torment Paul is transformed by God into a means of proclaiming Christ's power and grace. This surprising twist reflects the paradoxical way God defeats Satan. God permits Satan to strike or to weaken the apostle, but God turns the stricken Paul into an even greater instrument of his power. A proud, arrogant Paul would have only hindered the gospel's advance. A humiliated, frail Paul, led as a captive in God's triumph, back in chapter 2, has accelerated the gospel's progress so that the fragrance of knowing God spreads everywhere. Or as Samuel Rutherford said, grace withers without adversity. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons. Actually, I heard one time something that was really helpful in Romans 8. You know how it says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us? You know, all these threats to our faith. How, how, how are you a more than a conqueror? Well, if you have a, Satan wants to tempt you and you know, devour your faith and you resist that, you've conquered, right? How could you become a more than a conqueror? Here was the illustration. Imagine being in a fencing duel with Satan. And God's hand, his omnipotent hand, is on your hand. And as Satan comes to kill you, you grab his hand with his sword, and you use his sword to cut off your flesh. Cut off sinful tendencies or temptations or whatever. So you don't just resist the temptation, you actually use it to make you stronger. And you become a more than a conqueror, which is exactly the point. Satan is a tool to accomplish God's greater purpose. So Satan has his purposes for our afflictions and weaknesses, and the Father has his purposes. Which one will win out Which one's winning right now? Which one is going to win out in the future when we face stuff that's really heavy? We're going to need to believe God's good purposes. So let's look at them in verses 9 and 10. This is kind of the climax of this section. God wants to convince us of his good and loving purposes in making us weak. So Paul prayed repeatedly that the Lord would take it away, and then verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So the thorn obviously made him weak. 
Paul didn't want to be weak. So you can imagine, I don't know if it was the eye malady, but let's say it was an eye malady. Lord, I could serve you better if I could see. I could read more. Like, I need to know my Bible for crying out loud. Constantly needing help. You know, when, when I, this infection, it's just off-putting, and people don't even want to be around me. It's just kind of gross. Why don't you take this away? It would, I could serve you so much more effectively. Grace is often denied in our desired form before it is supplied in our needed form. Therefore, so he hears the answer from the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, not for my own sake, okay? (laughs) If it was for my own sake, I would want security, I'd want to find my security in strength and success. But for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because, here's why, because when I'm weak, then I am strong. So let me unpack this just with a personal illustration. There was this time a few years ago when I was feeling particularly overwhelmed. I often feel overwhelmed. Anybody? Okay. But this was like particularly overwhelmed. Have you ever felt like you're going to crack? Okay. That kind of overwhelmed. And I remember right where I was, was heading out on a prayer walk, and I needed some, like, I needed a gospel smart bomb. You know, I needed, like, tailor-made grace for how I was feeling at the moment. And my mind went to 2 Corinthians 12. I pulled it up on my phone, read it as I started to walk, read this passage, and my mind kind of, like, latched onto the word, you know, harass. <laughs> It wasn't that anybody was particularly picking on me, but I, you know, it was, anyway, I resonated with it, okay? So I'm meditating on Paul's logic here, God's logic here. You resonate with the harassment thing? Ever feel that way? Okay. So God's the one who ultimately ordained this harassment. But this isn't a twisted plan. Okay, it's a loving plan, a loving purpose. God did this in order to humble Paul. It was encouraging for me at the moment to realize that God intentionally harassed Paul in order to help Paul. So this was happening in the moment, beginning of my walk, just thinking through this. I mean, just think of the alternative. What if God gave you gifts and blessings and even success and whatever, and what if you had no harassment, nothing to make you weak? And then what if you slowly and subtly got conceited thinking how gifted you are and how much... You know, it's so easy. If, if things are easy for us, it's so easy to look down on the other strugglers and be very impatient with weak people. Who are the people that typically reach out to people that are weak? People that have... They're weak. They know it. They get it. 
So if that never happened, think about how dangerous. If you got self-sufficient, you felt no need for all-sufficient grace, what would happen? You would get really weak and you wouldn't even know it. You'd have this shell of strength, but you'd be actually really weak, dangerously weak if you are self-reliant and proud. That would be a twisted, unloving plan, wouldn't it, for God to just leave us like that? So God ordains things that make us weak so that we see our utter need for all-sufficient grace. And seeing that utter need for all-sufficient grace can free us if we realize this, this just keeps throwing me onto him because I'm so desperate and helpless and weak. I need him, I need him, I need him, I need him. Oh, so I get his strength and his strength and his help and his help. And then he sustains me and he delivers me and he helps me and it's his strength. So he gets the glory and I get the help and other people get his strength through me and Seeing that starts to free you from begrudging the weakness or resenting the weakness. And we start to be content with it. It actually happened to me that day. Like, it actually happened. It was, I, I didn't do that. It was just, I, I needed to be reoriented. And the Lord provided that. And this is what it's here for us for today. Nothing changed circumstantially for me that day. And you're in here and everything's still the same. All the pressures, all the... But what if God has good purposes for it? Can you imagine the shift? Wait, I can be content with this because it's keeping me weak so that he can give me his strength, so that his power can be perfected in my weakness. So that I can become truly strong in his Strength. So when affliction arrives, when God says no to your pleading, we need to know his purposes and trust them, that the power of Christ is perfected in our weakness. So listen, brothers and sisters, expect to be made weak. Expect it. It's not typically what we want. It's not what I want. But how many of you resonate with this? I, Your life has not turned out like you expected. Your life is not turning out. If you're a little younger, your life is not turning out as you expected. Like you dreamed, like you wanted, and you kick against it all the time. And you wonder what to make of it, how to interpret it. Am I being punished? What if, what if I would have only, do you, do you go back and think, man, I just wish I would have made a different turn at that point? Did I do the wrong thing, make the wrong decision? Have I blown up my life? Now, certainly, we would all kind of say, of course, we shouldn't want our designer life, and this is not what I wanted, you know, some perfect Designer life, you know, that's selfish, obviously. But listen, this also speaks to good desires. 
Paul was not in sin asking for this thing to be taken away. Paul's not a masochist. This was not a selfish, unreasonable request, but the answer was still no. So some, temporary, some suffering is temporary, right? But some of it is not going away until Jesus comes back. Or a whole lot longer than we would choose, right? This passage speaks particularly to that kind of pain and suffering and affliction that keeps us weak, keeps us weak. The kind we're stuck with. Have you ever felt like, I could do so much more for you without this thorn? Take it away. So God is saying to us through this passage, are you going to trust my calculus of effectiveness or fruitfulness that it's better than your calculus? You're a jar of clay for a reason. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So one final point here before we close with a song. Sometimes the show and demonstrate, you know, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Sometimes that can be publicly demonstrated, okay? So we think of someone like Johnny Erickson Tata. It's really obvious that her weakness is the very pathway by which she is so strong in the grace of the Lord, and his power is displayed in her life as a quadriplegic for, I don't know, maybe almost 60 years now or 50-some years. So fruitful. It's very evident in the lives of Barry and Ralph and Roland. How often, has this ever happened to you? How often do they come to mind for me as an example of the point? That's because weakness is normal Christianity. So, yeah, exactly. So, but see, oftentimes the work of the thorn is hidden, even though its fruit becomes visible one way or another. So listen to John Bloom. He wrote a post called Why You Have That Thorn. Just like Paul's, our thorns weaken us. Sometimes they are visible to others, but often they are hidden from public view, known only to those who know us best. And they are never romantic, never heroic. Rather, they almost always humble us in embarrassing rather than noble ways. They only seem to impede our effectiveness and fruitfulness, but they also are more likely to detract from rather than enhance our reputations. But this is the way our thorns have to be. Because if they were noble and heroic, if they enhanced our reputations, they would be of no help at all in guarding us from our pervasive pride. This is the reason we have our thorns. They are weakeners that strengthen us. Without them, we would choose a weaker strength. It's just one more wonderful kingdom paradox. Our agonizing thorns end up producing greater joy in us and ultimately make us more effective and fruitful.